Hey everybody, welcome to Licked and Loaded. I'm Laura Desiree. Joining me today is, oh yes, an undeniable icon in the adult industry. I'm so honored to bring you this episode. Um, she also happens to be my neighbor here in New York, which is pretty cool in itself. Had a lot of fun getting to know her, and uh, you're going to enjoy just as much of it right here on today's episode. Joining me for an inspired discussion is the sensational, the legendary Lisa Ann. It is such an honor to have you here on Licked and Loaded today. Everyone, Lisa, Ann, hello. Hello there. How are you today, dear? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. I am just thrilled uh, to have this new friendship with you, to be as close as we are in this city that is so compacted with people. Uh, it's been wonderful. It's been wonderful uh having you as a neighbor. I completely agree. And we must put a special thanks out there to Romy Rain, who was in the city visiting you, made time to visit with me. And when she said, I have a friend here, I was like, well, I would like her to be my friend because we're always trying to make more friends. And you go through a trusted source. The best way to meet people is through other friends, like-minded, you know, and I just knew it would be a great fit. So I was very excited for our first interaction, which was a beautiful walk through MoMA. It's still one of my my favorite ways to meet somebody and it just proved itself once again. That was perfect. And I'm actually going to be seeing Romy in uh, LA next week. So oh, so exciting. Great, yeah. great, great. Yeah, what are you no, going out for? Oh, it's going to be wonderful. And yeah. uh, Lisa, I think it, it goes without saying that you are known as the most popular actress in porn. How How does that title sit with you? You know, it's one of those things where I don't know how it happens, right? But it, like any other business, consistency is key. And so getting in at such a young age and really, I studied the girls in the industry that came through my club in Reading, Pennsylvania for two years before I took my one-way flight to California to get in the business. And what I learned was about consistency, keeping your look the same, um, keeping your vibe the same, and really keeping that going because you're just going to continue to build your fan base, right? Whereas, you know, whether it's one of the things that was very shied away from when I got in the business was tattoos. Uh, they used to make you cover them at clubs. You'd have to put Dermablend on these tattoos. So I learned from the club owner's perspective, the director's perspective, and everyone's what they talked to me about was very important. Staying within 20 pounds of the weight you started, not changing your hair color, not making drastic changes to anything to continue to build a fan base that doesn't turn away because you've done something that they no longer like. Right. Oh my gosh. I mean, you've, you've really, you've got it down to a science. I love that. It's a business, yeah. right? And everything we do, we want to put our best foot forward. For me, I wanted to be as prepared in a business where I knew there could be a ton of risk, uh, a ton of attempts to fall into a bad situation, lifestyle. None of those were really my thing. You know, my thing was just being a house girl for so for a couple of years before meeting my first group of porn stars, burlesque dancers, magazine models. And I was just 
infatuated with the fact that they traveled the world, you know, and that the more popular they were, the more places they got to go. I mean, to me, that was the key to discovering the world like I really wanted to. So it was a much bigger picture than most people probably realize. And people will say to me like, so what's your thing? Like, what's your move and on set? Like, what do you specialize in? And I'm like, I don't really think I do anything that special. I've seen other girls do a lot more special things than me. I've just stayed consistent and yeah. I've stayed out of the fray. And, and you've got this, this hardcore ambition. I mean, that's, that's really what it is. You're one of the most driven people I think I've ever conversed with. There's this electricity that comes off of you and it's so exciting to be around. You've also obviously had major success in the mainstream. Is there, is there a different kind of fulfillment that you get from the legacy you have in the mainstream world of, of radio and sports? Does one outweigh the other for fulfillment, porn versus mainstream? More than anything, I just want to be a pace car and, you know, show everyone who's getting into the industry that they have unlimited options when they leave the industry. And by me doing what I'm doing and meeting people all the time, I started with Sirius XM in 2013 covering fantasy sports. Uh, now I do sports betting full time at Bovada, uh, doing my own fantasy football advice on my on my YouTube. That That's seven years of meeting people. I feel those people get to go and tell their people, oh, I met this girl. She used to be really popular in porn. She's super cool. She works hard. I want to change the narrative. Mm -hmm. So by meeting so many people and interacting as me, I'm hoping that people's minds will be more open when they cross paths with a girl who's either still in the industry or is working towards her second act in life outside of the industry, whatever it may be. I'm hoping that I can be that counterpoint where they're like, you know what? I met her. She was super cool. Like the, yeah. I should put my judgments aside. Most people have judgments that have never met a sex worker, never met somebody in the industry. And so they have nothing to compare it to except for the salacious stories that are pitched to them on television. And our success stories just aren't that exciting. Right. So it's always the, the, the dark story and the tales. So when you, when you look at that perspective of like, Oh, you've never met anybody in this world, but yet you've judged us. Like why? Yeah. And, and if Why? it's just the dark stories, the only other thing they have to go on are these fictional depictions, which is the actual work. I mean, it's, it's entertainment. Porn is for entertainment. It is. It's for entertainment. And if you're, you know, exposing yourself in a scenario where people know who you are as an adult performer, and you don't know how they feel about you, it can be really heavy. And I'll say my first couple sports events, I got to go to the Super Bowl and be on Radio Row, Super Bowl 50 in San Fran. I remember how anxious I was. Like, how are people going to treat me? How are people going to feel? And it was great because it was the way my boss presented me. And it was the way my coworkers with Sirius XM presented me to others. It just wasn't a thing. And so they helped me take away a stigma that I felt I was receiving by me taking this step, putting my, you know, anxiety and, and, and fear aside and saying, well, how else am I going to get to the next step? If I don't expose myself to people that I don't know how they feel about me. So, so how did you go into that though? That first Super Bowl or whatever, when you went in a little anxious, apprehensive of how you may be received, did you put on a front? Was there some kind of uh, protective gear, whether mental or physical that you put forward? I remember 
at first, the hardest thing for me was uh, my boobs were a lot bigger then. I had a reduction when I retired from the industry in 2014. And I remember being very self-conscious about what I was wearing. So I probably tried on a hundred tops. I probably <laughs> packed 50 for like a four day thing. You know, want to have something drapey that doesn't make me look too chesty. Like mine was all kind of self-inflicted, but it was real. I was walking into a neutral zone and I was bringing a look that was not neutral into it. So I just remember being really aware of my presence, um, being really careful about how I dressed. And luckily, I just remember the first day walking into the Sirius XM booth and having all of my people there. And as soon as I was around them, everything was fine because, you know, they're just talking to you, you're you. And so it just, it, but it did. And it took me facing it discussing it with myself and saying, well, how are you even going to consider doing something else if you don't get out of your own head? You're just in your own head. And we're in our head from negative preconceived notions about who we really are as people outside of set. Totally. That's an ongoing battle, regardless of the industry you're in. I mean, that is a human battle. So people, you're not alone in that. Lisa, your legacy in porn, undeniable, totally incredible. Still, you know, it, it blows my mind. It really does. The work that you've done and the, the titles that you've made for yourself. In this journey, in this porn legacy, uh, you know, you're, you're benefiting, you're doing so well, you're successful within that business, and yet you still choose to speak out, to speak up, and to be an activist for the rights that you think are not met. So at what point, how do you make that decision to say, yeah, even though I'm doing well in this, I'm still gonna speak to some of these issues. We all have to do the work, no matter what business we're all in, we all have to do the work. We have to help future generations and our future self be exposed to things that don't burden us morally. And I remember my very first contract I signed in 1994, you know, we went into the detail of like, back then we got paid more for a facial cum shot and most girls didn't want to do them. That wasn't a thing in the nineties. So they'd only put like two in your contract and you get $500 more. And you know, I can remember being in my early twenties and sitting across a table from a guy I never met before in an office and discussing with him when these were going to take place, where these loads were going to land. But yet what surprised me the most was I was not allowed to do interracial. And at the time, cable didn't buy interracial. In the 90s, there still was not interracial on cable. And if you were a contract girl, your movies were highly produced and very expensive. And the money they really hoped to make was off of the cable deal. So I did understand the business aspect of it once it was explained to me, but I could not understand how racist it was. Like to me, it was just so shocking. And I, I'm like, what do you mean cable doesn't buy it? And so I remember pondering this my whole first contract and, and when I was getting ready to renew and then I decided to go on my own. Then I decided to just take a stance around, say, 1996, where I said, I'm only going to shoot interracial for a while. And let's see if the cable companies miss having me on their networks, because at that point, I felt I was getting popular enough. And this could be a way to like hold back on any new content mm -hmm. and only put this type of content out there. And it was so hard to get people to shoot me an interracial scene. I had to go, my very first was a pussy man audition. So I had to act like I'd never done this before. This was the only way because every big company I went to said, no, you know, we won't pay your rate and we won't 
shoot you in a movie that we can't sell to cable. Uh, no, we don't want you to do this because we think it's going to ruin your career. No, you should, and, and I just kept getting these no's. So luckily I was able to, you know, get Shawn Michaels together and we were like, okay, how are we going to get this going? He's like, well, you we could do pussy man auditions, which is like super hokey. It's going to be like shot in somebody's apartment. It's going to be like a really low budget thing. Like you've never been on something this low budget. I'm like, if this is the only way I can do this, like no craft services, fine. You know, I'll pack a lunch. Like what's, you know, so I carried that through and I really made it a point at these award shows where you'd get to go to dinners with buyers. You'd get to meet the broadcast sellers who was putting this idea out there. I mean, it's up to you guys to start selling this product. Like that was a big thing to me because it just seemed obnoxious that here I was sitting and talking with somebody about loads on my face, hmm. but yet skin color was being chosen for me. And so I knew really young, that was going to be a big part of, you know, the thread and the fiber of my entire career, because I wanted to speak to other talent coming in and out of the industry. I wanted to also build a larger wealth of talent to work with. And when there's not a lot of work, you don't get a good variety of talent either. So that really was my thing, always will be my thing. And it was important to me to sit and personally interview performers and ask them what type of scenes they've been exposed to. And I learned that it was derogatory and there were negative things that were said to them. And I was like, okay, so here's one thing. We're having a trouble having to understand how to market uh, interracial scenes mm -hmm. to cable. But on the other side, because we haven't found a good place for them, we're using them in a derogatory sense. So there was a lot of work to be done and I made it a very important mission of mine. I still think there's a lot of room for growth yeah. Um, and, but the conversation has started and I see more girls being open-minded to making their own decision instead of letting a production company tell them who they can and cannot work with. Yeah. I, I mean, in that specific argument in particular about representation in the content itself, I mean, now you've got, you know, blacked, blacked raw, you've got this other, you know, um, phenomenon happening, this huge genre. What are your thoughts on that? What's tough for me for these type of companies who are taking advantage of this small market of competition and interracial is most likely they get girls that have not done an interracial scene yet. And in most cases, they pay them a lot more money to do this scene. And then of course, to hold the content, to not allow them to do the scene with another interracial company for amount of months or maybe a year. And to me, again, you're paying someone more to work with someone with a different skin color, which just doesn't seem fair, doesn't seem right, shouldn't be a selling point. You should be getting women who want to do these scenes. They should be doing them for the same rate that they get paid to do their other scenes. And so I get kind of hung up on that narrative where you're capitalizing it in a market where they don't really know the behind the scenes, but yeah. at the same time, you're kind of being shady about it by making it such a lucrative deal, especially for a girl that maybe didn't have the interest and hasn't explored interracial intimacy in her personal life. It's always been in my personal life. I mean, as soon as I got in the business, I couldn't wait to fuck Shawn Michaels. So when I found out I couldn't fuck him, I was like, oh my God, like I can't fuck him. What am I going to do? And I'm like, I'm going to be friends with him. We're going to fuck off camera. This is what we're going to do. And I remember we made this hokiest little homemade video of our very first time ever having sex. We tried to shoot it ourselves. This was before we knew how to shoot our own content. This was before ring lights. This was before good cameras on your iPhone. You know, so uh, we have this really... Uh, dingy looking uh, scene for our first, but we just wanted to capture it. 
Uh, so I think it's about have you explored? I always tell everyone, don't do anything on set that you haven't done in your personal life. Explore it because it's a choice before it's a paycheck. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking profound and so relevant even today, even when we're even still today. the one creating, you know, the content and in control of it, you still need to have that reflective moment. Yeah. I mean, it's the only way that I think you're going to find the fulfillment and find the comfort and the ability to do as well as you can do. Right. You and I have had phenomenal conversations about the impact of porn gone public. And I know that you educate on this and that you've traveled to some incredible countries, some destinations to speak about the impact of public access porn. When were you aware? What was the first observation you made that porn did play a huge role? One that makes a very uh, public effect, one that uh, does have an influence. Um, when did that come to your realization? So I really started to feel it. I would say we started to see the boom in the industry with the internet, with the amount of content that needed to be shot. Like companies, agencies went from having 10 shoots a day to a hundred shoots a day, because in the beginning of the internet, everyone thought we have to update a scene seven days a week. We need this many scenes a month. Like it was just this churn and burn and burn. So I was watching how it was affecting the industry and this immediate panic. And the funny thing was most people didn't really understand the internet yet. So they didn't know that photos need to be shot differently. Content need to be shot differently, different cameras, different everything. So everybody just jumped. So there you got the irrational thinkers of like, let's make sure that we can fill the internet. Yeah. And then as I was out on the road, I started to notice a huge difference in the young guys coming into clubs, you know, the juice bars, uh, you go through this deja vu tour where they have deja vus everywhere. And so you do this like, like, like a level, level week tour and you're on a, which is three, three nights, one club, three nights, the other, then you go get a day off. Like it's torture. And I realized, wow, everybody now knew who I was. There was no doubt. It was day and night from being able to go to a store and having somebody look at you and just kind of nod because they had a VHS and, right. and they had worked really hard to get that at an adult bookstore where it went in a brown bag and they knew it was kind of private personal. They had to show their ID. Like they were guarded with the data that they collected because they knew what they went through to get it. Once it became a free for all, there was no more being guarded. It was, you were an object mm -hmm. that was accessible at any time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And why wouldn't you be that accessible if you were seen in person? And I realized the different levels of understanding real and not real were very different when somebody actually had to show their ID, had to be of a certain age and had to work to get that product. Now yeah. we're feeding it and we're feeding it to guys that were coming into a juice bar at 18, telling me that they'd already been watching me for five or six years. And I'm doing the math. I'm like, okay, so this kid, 12 to 13, discovers porn, probably watches five, six hours a day, can recognize any single girl with or without makeup at any time of the day. Um, it's constantly on their mind. And I just noticed a difference in their level of manners for me, like, you know, it was completely different in the nineties, how just kind everybody was that would come up to your Polaroid booth and get a photo with you and chat with you for a moment, respectful. That kind of got washed away when the content became so accessible yeah. and so constant that they're thinking this is all you do all day long. This is all you are all day long. They don't understand anything else because it's just fed into a never ending timeline of updated content. 
So I noticed that I noticed a different level of aggression. Mm -hmm. I noticed a different level of value. My value as a human to a fan in the nineties was incredible. I mattered my value to a fan of today's generation that just wants to know if they can hook up with you, if they can have sex with you, they've watched too much of you. Their level of obsession is different. And no one spoke to them about these are sex acts that are consensually agreed upon. There is testing protocols in place. There's a conversation before the scene and there's a pay involved. There's mm -hmm. we're stunt people for adult content as a porn star. But if that conversation was never had in whether a porn literacy class or a parent, then the mind goes to this is my norm. And when this guy gets to meet me, he wants to make it his norm too. Yeah. And, and the content itself has changed the, the, intensity, the kinds of porn that's out there. I mean, you've been, you could probably speak to the fact that the kinds of sex acts we're depicting themselves have developed, evolved, escalated. And they have, because when we were distributing product in form of VHS or DVD, there's different laws in the entire United States. When you get down to the Bible Belt, there's things you can't ship there. Mm -hmm. You know, so there were all these regulations in place. You're sending your stuff to Australia. It has to be edited differently. You know, all the way down to how many fingers could be in somebody was that specific for a distribution for a particular state. And the internet happens. We open the floodgates. There's really no way to regulate it. We never labeled content like we label video games where this is, you know, for this age group, this is for this. We've never labeled something you see here could be picked violence, but the actors, you know, none of these little pre-disclosures that we should be having. Um, and so what we're seeing is just things that people never had access to see before because most of these companies in the 90s, they didn't want to trust their distributor, their sales team, their whatever. So they're not going to choke a girl out because they know if they send that to five states, they're going to jail. That's it. You're going to jail. Back then you'd go to jail for this. So content was shot differently. Also, the women were treated differently. They didn't want anybody to leave the industry because there wasn't a wealth of women coming in. So when, once you were in, they, they protected you to keep you there because they wanted to continue to work with you. That was all of the 90s up until here comes the internet. And from that attitude towards, oh, we've got to shoot 50 scenes a week. We want them to be different. Now we're bored with regular sex. Now we're bored with anal sex. Now we're bored with DP. Now we're going to stuff a girl's head in a toilet. Now we're going to choke a girl out. Now we're going to bring on smacking. Now we're going to have sleeping scenes. There were companies that were trying to do these scenes where the girl was sleeping and the guy would come in. And I'm like, you know, that's borderline rape. Okay. Like we can't, we, we, you can't do this. And just really aggressive content because the people that are in these offices that are delegating to their producers that they need 50 scenes a week, they're trying to get every, every single little target, every category, every keyword that it can be searched under. They're using that now to generate how they produce content. Instead of using the human aspect in the 90s of we want everybody to have a good time here. Oh, they wanted us to have really passionate, intimate sex, which shoot 15, 20 minutes of kissing. You know what I mean? Like, so you are actually super into it by the time the scene starts. Scenes were longer. We had to shoot with, on film. We had to relight every time we switched a position. Wasn't like a handheld 20 minute scene you're shooting. It was a good four hour day. We didn't have Viagra. So it was up to you, the talent, to keep your dude hard, to keep your dude engaged. We would, they would usually have a bedroom set up for us where we could go and play while they were relighting. Usually it was air conditioned because the set was hot. And like, you know, like, mm. 
treated us like they just want to make sure everybody sticks around. And that value being lost because the need for the amount of content and the different categories and keyword searches and all the targets these companies want to reach really took out the human aspect and put content out there that not only affects the performers, but truly affects people watching. I mean, it's, it's your introduction. It's your introduction to sex and it's harsh and it's graphic and we're not using any sort of login other than the trusted, are you 18 years old? Click this box. That's just not enough. I can't click a box to go buy cigarettes if I'm underage. I can't click a box to buy alcohol. This is the same. This is why we had an age gate. And it's something so crazy that because of the internet, we just decided to skate away from that and not think of the mental health aspect of it the intimacy, uh, lack of intimacy being shot because these scenes are also more of a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, because now they're trying to shoot scenes that are digestible because nobody has the attention span to watch something that's more than 15 minutes. So they, they don't want to waste time on kissing. They don't, I mean, in the, you know, went from the guy undressing you and teaching the viewer how to unhook a bra to next thing you know, they both, both walk in the room, they're naked. Guys are already hard. How did that happen? I don't have it. We just were in the kitchen and now we're in here and everything's happening. In, in the, in the argument that, you know, we are speaking and, and, and discussing and bringing more taboo sex to the conversation and being more, uh, onus of, of the kinds of sex that people have. I mean, is there a responsibility maybe to some of the sex acts that may be a little bit more taboo, but certainly want to have a place in porn? Yeah, I think it would great to have some sort of a labeling system that is with a disclaimer. Hmm. You know, you have to have a disclaimer on a betting website. You have to have it on, you know, a cigarette website, a disclaimer and, you know, the education of it. I think it's really important for parents to understand if their kids have access to the internet there's a pretty strong chance they're going to stumble upon something that maybe they don't really know how to process. And, you know, if you mirror your child's presence on the internet, well, that's a great time to just have an open conversation. Right. I'm, you know, even if we did put it on the producers, we said, we want a disclaimer. You have to start labeling these scenes. Who's going to watch it. Who's going to read it. That's going to be their debate. So yeah. I really think it's more about at home. And, and the example I give my friends that have kids, as I say this, would you let your kid, your 12 year old walk outside in New York city, not tell you where they were going, not tell you who they were going with and not tell you how long they were going to be there. Don't even get to tell them, look both ways before crossing the street. Nothing. Would you do that? Just let your kid walk. And they're like, of course I would, who would do that? I'm like, but you're doing the same thing on the internet mm. because there's so much there for them to be exposed to. And especially when it comes to altering their entire perspective on intimacy, how to treat a woman, how to feel love and a connection and how to have really good sex. These kids don't know that we're not that loud when we're not on set. They think we're acting, okay? We're acting. There's actually directors that would be on set telling you, you're not vocal enough. You need to talk more. You need to yell more. You know, you need to do this. And so we're being coached up here on making this elaborate, you know, thing. And so I think it becomes unobtainable to a young person because they don't know how unrealistic it is because to them, it's on the internet. It's on their phone. This shit's real. Right. It's real. And this is how it should be. This is how it's done. This is your set of rules for the right. world of intimacy. 
And it wouldn't be a bad idea for the industry to put out, you know, a, a series of consent conversations. Mm-hmm. So young people do know this is what we do on set. We, we have a little signal. I'll tap you twice if something's uncomfortable. You'll tap me twice if something is uncomfortable. We talk about different things. Some guys have a curve. So you look at what I would call our workbench, uh, mm-hmm. what our area was, couch, counter, what desk, what have you. And you'd really sit with him and go, okay, you have a curve, which way is going to be more comfortable for you? Like we, we, we block this all out. These kids just think this is how it's going to happen. It's going to be pretty traumatic when they actually do try and try that stuff because it's really difficult to do. And it's also probably not something a younger woman wants for her first sexual experience. No kidding. Oh my gosh. No kidding. I mean, those early first time encounters I'm, I'm as a 32 year old, I remember when porn became available and I had had enough time before it being totally public access. Like I remember being able to, to find it only very late at night on the squiggly channel on TV. Oh yeah, it wasn't, but you could hear it, but it was like, you know, yeah. the, the, the channel wasn't clear because you didn't yeah. pay for it. It was blocked out. Yeah, we all, we all did that. We all tried to watch that. Yeah, you would just find sometimes a blip of like clear visual would come through. And by the way, even if you did get through to that scene, there was no violence on women ever. Right, right. That's changed a lot. And how can we have come so far in society with what we've learned over the past couple of years, but we're still putting this out there in this industry? It's almost like the industry took a weird step back when it came to women's rights. Hmm. What would your, what would Lisa Ann's disclaimer say? If you could write the disclaimer for some of this more hardcore content, what would it, uh, what would that include? It would definitely refer to stunt people. These are sexual Olympians, AKA stunt people. They are well-trained and prepared for the sex act they're about to perform. They've chosen their partner and have a trust with that partner. They've had a consent conversation and exchanged their STD results with each other. Um, You know, I would go through those things, which are very important because another thing with the lack of condoms in scenes, you know, the highest STD and HIV population in the United States right now is younger than ever. And I do believe it's because they don't see porn. I understand porn is against it. We tried multiple times to try and, yeah. you know, infuse condoms in and Wicked's been a great company yeah. and has always been condoms since the first major outbreak in 1997. So the male performers also say it's harder, but it's really about a responsibility because yeah. if a kid is watching it too young and then they go to try and they put a condom on and they don't stay hard to put that condom on, which is a challenge they're going to give up and they're going to give up and they're going to have unprotected sex. And we're seeing the outcome of that right now. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Just, just put the fucking condom on. Yeah. Just put the condom on and also, you know, roll back your expectations in your real life. I mean, that's the thing comparing a, a girl uh, that you're choosing to meet to a porn star is just unrealistic. It'd be like, comparing a guy I'm going to go on a hike with to like a mountain climber. Okay. I'm not doing that. So, you know, I would, I would like a disclaimer. And I would also think, you know, we only have 22 states in the U S right now offering sexual education, just straight up fucking sexual education, only 22 states, only 22 of our states are willing to give our amazing young people the information they need to be safe and to not get into a a lasting situation, a a, a STD that's treatable, but not curable, a teen pregnancy, all of these things. So 
if you think we only have 22, how do we band on to get porn literacy? Something super basic, very much like that disclaimer. We understand that you're watching adult content. We want to teach you a bit about it, how it's created, why it's created, the extremes that it's created to, the over-exaggerations of the acts that are being done and how difficult it is to do most of those acts at home. Uh, porn literacy could be a very short touched on subject, but it needs to be discussed because again, I just think parents, I see kids younger and younger every day with phones. And I just don't think parents are really aware because think about it, a lot of parents didn't have that type of graphic content available to them. And they might be at that gap where the internet, like you just said, wasn't really as accessible. This free porn is able to get it. So they've missed the whole generation of that. And they also don't know the types of scenes that are being shot. No shit. I mean, would you write the curriculum? Lisa, just do it. Write that curriculum. Yeah, it it's funny. I've started to collect some really good articles I've been finding online about advocates who are really into trying to find the perfect age group. Uh, the perfect schools criteria is to bring in this conversation, a way to make it fun. So what I'm doing is I'm kind of gathering everything right now. And then what I want to do is start reaching out to them and, you know, get on a zoom call and just say, how can we make this? Because it could be something really fun for me to do, to be able to travel into schools because I am well-liked and well-received and would be able to make light of it and not make it something that parents had to be up in arms about, or teachers had to be offended by, but it's an important conversation to have. And it's also important to know that they're not learning about intimacy, love in these movies. They're not learning about intimacy, love, and the sex that they want to be having at home in these movies. Learning about a fantasy. It's like a race car driver. It's like the Fast and the Furious uh, series of movies. Like we are that extreme. You don't teach a kid to drive by watching the Fast and Furious series, right? You don't do that. You don't teach a kid to have sex by watching the porn that they're watching online. No, not, not in the slightest. If I learned to drive from Vin Diesel, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if I would be uh, outside of the prison system today. You know, yeah, you're not, you know, you could have had a couple cars impounded. You know, speedy to your insurance be hella high. I'd be horrible. Right. Horrible, Lisa. And uh, end of the day, what do you want to be famous for? Really, I want to be more famous through the people that have known me for the networking and sharing of my people that I do. I think when it all comes at the end, uh, there's going to be tons of people that I've met in my life where I've one day said, hey, I think you should meet this person. I spend a lot of my time introducing myself to people that I want to meet or introducing my people to somebody that I think they should meet and growing my village, you know, and just making sure that I'm interacting with all the right people and sharing them to interact with other people. It's just about not making time to make money. It's really making time to make your world, your world that you come in contact with better. Um, and also, you know, advocacy work, you know, definitely raising the awareness of porn literacy, raising the awareness of the lack of intimacy. I think we're witnessing, you know, how to roll that back in, how hot it was to go to second base and put, have your guy put his hand up your shirt. And that's all he got. Like, that was amazing. Like those, those were like the slow roll up to the actual first time the pants came off, like get back to that. But, you know, there's a lot of things I'd like to get be known for other than being a porn star. Well, my goodness. I mean, what a, what a treat to, to hear 
the passions and to hear the experiences. Lisa Ann, thank you so much for today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Oh my goodness. Where can all of our viewers get in touch with you online and stay up to date with your upcoming projects and work? You can follow everything I do at The Real Lisa Ann, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Uh, my podcast, Lisa Ann Experience, lands every Wednesday on all podcast platforms. And then back out on my YouTube on Fridays. And my new podcast focused truly for my YouTube followers, Dudes Do Better. Great short story, fun interviews that you did one with me last week, which was amazing. And that's also on my YouTube. So at The Real Lisa Ann, new book coming out in December, my second book. I'm really excited about it. And uh, I can't wait to kind of feel the world's response and, and actually just walk to the post office and fill orders. Oh my gosh, I'm excited too. I'm so excited. Lisa Ann, thank you so much once again. And everyone watching, if you've enjoyed this, please like, subscribe, and favorite this channel. Uh, this has been another Licked and Loaded. I'm Laura Desiree, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>